Kim Adams, and I'm here with my colleagues John Lindstrom and Chad Hagelmeyer, and this week we are talking about archives. So, to get things started, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? This is Chad. This is John. We're <laughs> PhD students. Is everybody <laughs> yes. on this PhD student? I don't know. Uh, I think most of the people so on this far, are. Yes. Um, I'm here to act as moderator, so I will ask the first question, uh, which is very simply, what is an archive? So, what do you guys think? John, I want to take a stab at this one first, since you were just recently working in an archive. Sure. So, uh, I spent about two months of my summer largely in an archive at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Um, a fine city. A fine city. It's gorgeous. Oh, um, <laughs> yes, it's very lovely. I uh, was studying this fellow, Liberty Hyde Bailey. So this is an agrarian philosopher and poet and writer who happened to grow up in my hometown in Michigan, and that's kind of how I found out about him, and that's why no one else knows about him. Um, actually, there that's complicated, but and that gets into archive issues. Yes, it does. Um, but yeah, so I was doing archival research for a chapter of my dissertation, and I have been to this archive before. I worked at the Liberty Head Bailey Museum, which is a birthsite childhood home museum in my hometown, uh, and I feel very steeped in this guy's leftovers, um, which is one way maybe to think about an archive, is like, I think you have some snappy quote about a dumping ground. Um, or like, I don't know how snappy it is because it's Derrida, but yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> that but sounds it, legit. It's like a person's leftovers. Yeah, in this case, it's an individual's, but it could be an organization's. It could be anything. Um, and like that kind of traditional sense of an archive would be the collection of papers and and I think also when I tell people that I'm going through the Liberty Head Bailey papers, it's like, well, what is that, like manuscripts or. Whatever. In the case of Bailey, it consists of tons of correspondence, mm. just feet of correspondence. I think it's 43.3 cubic Lin- linear, linear feet. Linear feet yeah. is the I size. love the, Yes. Yeah. So much material that's measured in feet, boxes. not words. <laughs> yeah. But there's also some manuscript material and note cards and little ephemera. When we're talking about archives, we're talking about a, a diversity of objects and collections of objects, um, and that their diversity can in some way be traced back to their source, right? So you can have an archive of, of an individual that would be made up of all the things um, you typically think of individuals as leaving behind. Uh, manuscripts, letters, uh, ephemera, notes, um, things like that. Um, but it can also be just a collection of papers uh, made by a number of individuals that had nothing to do with each other, that just by like some kind of historical chance have been gathered together under the same roof. Mm-hmm. And in that case, you can have all types of strange objects being kept for reasons that are no longer known. <laughs> um, yeah. 
So I have experience in, 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 in two archives, I guess. Um, one from my work as a, as a graduate student. Um, I've been in a few different archives of papers belonging to individual authors uh, like Joan Didion or Tom Wolfe. When I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley, I also worked in a photographic archive that was within a larger archive of stuff, um, rare books and maps, and legendarily there, um, uh, it was at least legend among all the student workers um, at the Baycroft Library, which was the, the name of the archive, um, there was a piece of 100-year-old wedding cake. Um, and in typical archive fashion, this, this piece of wedding cake was, was in a little box, and if you looked at it, it was just this dried up, colorful lump. I mean, it really was completely unidentifiable just by, by looking at it. The only way you knew what this thing was, was by reading the label on the box. Um, Gotta just trust that that's wooden cake in there. Exactly, yeah. And there was no explanation within the archive itself for why this was here. It was just, this is the wedding cake of these people. They were like kind of high society Californians, I think in like the 19 teens or 20s. And I remember asking my boss there, like, why is this piece of cake there? And her only explanation was like sort of archive lore, which was, oh, there used to be this archivist here. And he just kind of went crazy bringing all this stuff into the archive. And, you know, a lot of it we didn't even know it was here until we built a new building for the library uh, and found it. Um, so there, you know, Derrida brings this up, and when we talk about Der Derrida, we're specifically mentioning a text he wrote called Mal d'Archive, or Archive Fever in English, and one of the things that he says are, are very important about archives is this distinguishing between an outside and an inside, and a negotiation across that, that boundary marker. There's something about archives that represents both a kind of... Um, obsessive order or an obsessive maintenance of that boundary, but also a disorder and a chaos, right? Like there's so many archives that seem to be, you know, not very well ordered or John, you were mentioning before we started recording um, that in the Liberty Hyde Bailey papers, there were just these boxes that were really important, but that weren't in the finding aid. Yeah. And in this case, a guy who just was randomly stashing pieces of high society wedding cake. When I think like with the Bailey papers, yeah, there's, I've, found like several boxes that just were I mean the finding aid itself is like a fascinating it's can it you really quickly of, define a finding aid yeah. uh, and tell us what it looks like and how you use it yeah so a lot of finding aids are electronic now although not all even at Cornell if you s google Liberty Hyde Bailey papers you'll find this really long HTML page that you can just scroll and scroll and scroll through where you have where each line typically represents a folder in a box and different finding aids will be organized in different ways, but the idea is if I want to study Liberty Head Bailey's involvement in Theodore Roosevelt's Country Life Commission, I can go to the section, some, some archivist has identified the portion of, the, of this archival collection related to this commission as significant enough to be its own section. So like Roman numeral section seven or something of this find, the way this finding aid is organized is all Country Life Commission stuff, presumably, although you get in there and then you find surprising things that maybe Bailey just kept with his Country Life files or something. Um, and so the finding aid lets you do that, but 
the way that his finding aid, for example, is organized is not numerically. So there are huh. numbers that correspond to, I assume, the way that the archive was acquired, what was together at the time that they were acquired. But that's not necessarily thematically relevant, and mm-hmm. they want it to be th- a thematically organized collection. So you don't have, like, box one, box two, box three. You have, okay, here are per- here's personal correspondence from before Bailey was born in boxes 1, 17, and 26, for example, and then you've got a list of the folders and whatever an archivist thought was, like, defining about that folder, and then you have to pull it physically when you're in the archive in order to see what's in it. So that's, like, how Bailey's Finding Aid worked. And to the point of, like, the crazy things that you just find in archives, I mean, because of my research interest, I haven't pulled the boxes of glass plate photographic negatives or lantern slides or Liberty Hyde Bailey's personal typewriter, all of which are also in this archive. Wow. And like what might one learn from Bailey's typewriter? I don't know, but because I haven't asked that question, (laughs) I've never seen it. (laughs) Oh, that's so fantastic. And I'm really glad that you made the the point about how a finding aid reveals like the organization of... um, of an archive because yeah actually there are so many ways to organize these things and in some ways part of the chaos of the archive comes from how difficult it is to organize things that are so seemingly unrelated or their only relation to each other is that they belong to one person like a typewriter yeah. and a collection of correspondence yeah but also that like maintaining the order that another person before you has created for these things uh, tells you something about the provenance of the objects, mm. uh, and that's like that's more information that you have about them right there. So, when I was working at the Bancroft Library, um, the uh, now defunct San Francisco Examiner, a newspaper from the 19th to 20th centuries in San Francisco, donated most of their photographic archive to us. And even though we thought their system was crazy and made things really difficult to find in some cases, we we kept it. We preserved their order because that tells us something about how the newspaper sort of thought about what they were doing um, and um, kind of what they thought was related and revealed this sort of um, concepts concepts or categories that they were thinking in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That seems super relevant and important to what we're talking about. And some of the most like spine-tingling moments that I've had in the archives are when you really get a sense that this is the way that this individual left this behind, Mm. for example. I mean, in the Bailey papers, um, there's this unpublished novel that exists in four different editions from manuscript to typescript in the archive in one of these boxes that was previously missing from the finding aid, my favorite box, box 18, a very (laughs) special personal affection for now. Um, But along with the last copy of the, chronologically, the last one that he wrote, the most final, I guess, draft of this unpublished thing, is this sheet of paper that's just slipped in there, dated like a decade after the manuscript is dated, and it's Bailey in his own hand, uh, in just you know, uh, with an ink pen, writing um, that he has just come upon this manuscript again for the first time in over a decade, and he says something like, "It meant much, much to me once. I haven't looked at it since. I don't intend to reread it now. 
I will let it lie with the years. The mysteries of life are never solved. And then he just signs his name. And I just, like, got chills. Like, let it lie with the years. I mean, I I might not have had any idea that in 2017, you know, he died in 1954 at the age of 96. And here I am in 2017 sitting in an archive, like, touching this and reading it and feeling like this was left for who? I mean... You know, for your you. ego gets involved. Yeah. You're like, oh, that, is that, is like, that is the statement of the author who imagines themselves in the archive. Yeah, right? yeah. You absolutely. You date it and sign it yeah. because you want someone to know when you wrote that and that it was you. Like yeah. you mark it with your own indexical signifiers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Since we mentioned Derrida, I figure I might read very short selection of his own words so that we're actually like not just name checking him um, so this is maybe the most important uh, one, one of the more famous passages uh, from RK Fever that like succinctly uh, sort of and that's not something that Derrida is really famous for but succinctly uh, defines for him what an archive is and this is kind of this may not illuminate anything but it's important to, I think uh, so Derrida says um, there is no archive without a place of consignation without a technique of repetition, and without a certain exteriority. No archive without outside. Which replicates the phrase from of grammatology, il n'y a pas de vortex. Right, right. yeah, can there you say that in English? My French is really bad. <laughs> there is no outside the text. Yes. So there is nothing outside the text. or the. End. But is he saying here that there is no archive? archive without an outside separate from it? Well, it's actually coextensive with so the This is where it gets com- a little bit complicated. I, th- I think that what Chad was saying earlier about like the archive is about policing the boundary between mm-hmm. inside and outside, mm-hmm. and the text for Derrida is something that just like sort of escapes the boundaries of its, of its confines mm-hmm. in a way that the archive um, is interested in trying to control. The structure of the archive is more about keeping those book covers shut. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, if you've ever been in an archive, and I don't mean to malign anyone, but talked to an archivist, <laughs> you get the sense in some archives that they don't want you there. You pose a danger <laughs> to the materials inside. <laughs> or, or at least <laughs> that, they, they, that they're very much trying to control what comes in and out, yes. and yeah. the agents of things going in and out are people. So that's why, I mean, this might lead us to our next question about what is it, what is it like to actually be in an archive. Yeah. Um, you have to leave your belongings outside often, and mm-hmm. what you bring in is very controlled. And what you bring out is even more controlled. What you bring out is even more controlled. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so what is, it, yeah. what is the bodily experience of archival work like? Yeah, John, you mentioned getting chills in the archive, which I think is, is um, there's a, maybe if, only if you're an academic, but there's a whole kind of like romantic notion of archival research, right? Where you're like some kind of Indiana Jones uncovering <laughs> something really special or really meaningful or really important. The importance of that might be a bit relative. It might be more mm-hmm. personally important than, than, than not or, mm-hmm. you know, vice versa or something. I don't mention that to say that those 
moments where you get chills aren't real. They absolutely are. And I think we can all say we've had those moments, but they mm -hmm. only come after yeah. long, boring, yeah. sometimes arduous hours, yeah. right? So could you say a little bit more about the, the not exciting, not chills parts of the yeah. working in the archive? It's also really cold in archives. What? It's always yeah. cold. Yeah, that's true. So, so the chills... literal chills <laughs> a lot. Actually just shivering to keep warm. <laughs> well, yeah. While, like, no mold spores are growing on you, that's, at least. That's, so that's true. Good. Yeah. So this summer, I had already been to this archive a number of times kind of on my own for different reasons but the first time I went was when I was in my MFA program and I had no idea what I was looking for it was unstructured and that's not the best way to go into an archive uh, oftentimes sometimes sometimes I mean yeah but in this if, case if you, if you want to get your research done in a timely manner that is definitely not right. the best way of going right. in but sometimes you can't help it yeah and I had a week there which <clears throat> might sound like a long time in some ways and I thought it would be a long time but when we're talking about hundreds of feet of material, that's... Oh, yeah. It just flies by. And um, I remember going through, thinking what I want to do is go through the publisher correspondence, Macmillan, you know, correspondence, because Bailey published a lot of books with Macmillan. And I was looking for stuff related to some specific books. Well, Bailey was a publishing powerhouse, and he was editing a ton of other people's books as well as publishing a lot of his own. And there were just folder after folder and folders like each folder was a month of a year you know so January 1914 and there might be 20 letters or more and and maybe there will be two folders for that month you know depending on how much he was writing and there were so many books I wasn't interested in that he was writing to editors about that were probably important books at the time but there were things like milk and its products you know he, he was editing agricultural textbooks um and you know i don't and it's written by somebody i don't care about about you know so you know there's hours and hours of that kind of stuff um especially before you have a sense of like the shape of a collection but you also the the physical sorry the physical like experience of like you go in with your they have green sheets of paper that you have to use because they're not the color of normal paper. And there are number two pencils that they have, like, right by the door. You pick up your number two pencil and your green piece of paper. You are on camera from, like, many different angles so that they can see if your number two pencil, like, wanders over to a piece of archival manuscript or something, um, which, like, immediately makes archivists cringe as soon as you say something like that as a possibility. Um... And they're very, I mean, they just care a lot about the fact that this crumbling piece of 150-year-old correspondence will still be there another 150 years from now mm -hmm. for the next person. And you got to, like, give them props for that. Absolutely, but, yeah. I, yeah. I, my maligning of archives earlier was... <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek. Was just to give you know a certain kind of experience of being in the archive, but but for the most part they are doing an important job. Uh, and uh, we love you. Archivist. We love you. Please love don't you. please don't keep us out please of your archives. Keep safe <laughs> and let us look at them. Yes. Um, but no, I'm glad that you mentioned like what you once again. I'm glad you mentioned what you did because one of the strategies these days uh, when there are like lots of archives and lots of really really big archives. Um, 
one of the strategies for sort of making it hard to find information is not to keep the archive closed, but to open the archive, but provide no way of navigating it whatsoever. Hmm. Um, so this often happens, um, or has, has, has happened in former Soviet countries that opened the, hmm. the secret police archives from the Soviet period. Hmm. Um, and I know specifically in the case of Romania, they just dumped pallets and pallets and pallets of documents from the, from this archive on the front step of a magazine with no notice that requested some documents from them with no notice and no finding aid whatsoever. Um, so so the, sometimes you do have to go into the archive without knowing a lot beforehand, either because the finding aid is really not very detailed or just because there isn't one at all. And reading in that context presents a particular and special challenge, I think, because there's no way it, the content, um, the volume of the content completely exceeds your human abilities to read and to process information, right? Um, there's just not a, enough time in one human life, at least not like a fulfilling human life to read a lot of this stuff. Um, so I know um, a lot of like really good archival work has recently come out of people who just sit down and start randomly, kind of at first, mm -hmm. reading this stuff. Mm -hmm. I like that too because it gives an example of how archives can be dangerous to like the state, right? Where we're like, we don't really want you to have access to this, so we're just going to dump it off as a pallet and good luck. Yeah. Like, I'm sure they won't actually make their way through anything. I mean, if you had, for example, like Donald Trump's tax returns in an archive that you could just pull out, that could be very dangerous to his reputation, or for example, right? Yeah. Um, and. So not yeah. all archives are the sort of academic archives that we're talking about accessing. There are plenty of archives that remain hidden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like the IRS files that <laughs> do contain Donald Trump's Yeah, right, right. That, that is an archive, and it exists. <laughs> it is there. Right. And um, someone has access to it. Um, but there are decisions about... as scholars. Right. right. Who gets access to what, and how do you get that access? Whether you're reaching across time or space or whatever else, um, there's a responsibility that an archival researcher has not to assume understanding or comprehensive comprehension at least yeah. um, in an absolute way so you're always sort of doubting yourself and questioning like the meaning because it's because all of a sudden you're one of the probably one of the only people in the world who has read this piece of correspondence or this poetry poem manuscript or something um, and what you say could change the way that people think about that thing or that person, um, and who are, who are who are we to do that? You know, it uh, leads to existential angst very quickly. Absolutely, yeah. and if you find yourself being, you know, one of a limited population of people able to access some of these archives, that's a that's a kind of weird privilege. I mean, not that um, you know, not that many people necessarily care about the things that we are going to read in the archive, but there are those things that do end up like changing history in a way that mm. discovered in archives, right? So um, the fact that like a, a privileged few get to enter into that space and pull out potentially like important or historically significant information is interesting. <laughs> we should say as like a public service announcement that 
there are a lot of archives, a lot of really important archives that are not just open to scholars. Like That's true. The Digitization projects are totally kind of, in a way, blowing up what we might mean by an archive and yeah. making them much more widely accessible. But also a lot of the, like, you know, traditional collections, like the, the stuff the New York Public Library's main branch, as a member of the general public, yeah. as a card-holding member of the New York public library system, you can request an appointment to look mm -hmm. at Tom Wolfe's papers. Yes, yeah. if you, you want too to. can read the hate mail that Tom Wolfe got <laughs> in 1968 <laughs> if you have an NYPL uh, library card. Yes. And most universities, anybody can go into yeah. to their archives if you have You just have to request You might have to convince yeah. them a little, but yeah. yeah. You yeah. just have to say that I really want to read about Liberty Hyde Bailey or Charles Olson yeah. or whatever. Yeah. There are community members coming into the Cornell archive all the time. Um, yeah. And they were, and the archivists were very happy to like have that exposure. If you go into like fails at NYU here, a um, lot of very interesting characters who I've seen like just come <laughs> in and start looking at you know <laughs> beat poetry of a certain period. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. it's which well, is great. Fails has the downtown collection, which is all the like punk rock right stuff. So that Probably. attracts. But still, like the the relative accessibility of these items is not, is yeah, yeah. Um, with great access comes great. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that's what uh, that's what Spider Man says. Yeah, while wearing his Spidey costume. Yeah. Um, we were talking before we started recording about digitization too, and the way that. Often, so some uh, there's a handful of sort of charismatic documents in the Liberty Head Bailey papers that are digitally accessible on an Cornell's website. Descriptor charismatic, charismatic documents. documents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the letter that W. E. B. Du Bois wrote to Bailey yeah. while he was on the Country Life Commission. You can read that online. But I didn't know until I pulled that folder from the archive physically that yeah. Bailey initiated the correspondence. Oh, and you, you wouldn't know that looking at the letter from Du Bois that's been yeah. digitized. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's... And archives are so... I mean, we were talking earlier about how sometimes the organization can seem kind of spastic or random. Um, archives are always receiving more... Yeah material right and <clears throat> so there's this mad rush to always be creating some kind of to, of making them accessible because they can't make them accessible until they've gone through and sort of cataloged what's there mm -hmm. so that they know if something goes missing for example yeah. Um, yeah. so there's like that can sometimes feel random and then you know you and then you can only imagine how much how little time is left over to then start making high quality digital scans of certain things yeah. Um, and also, you've got to get someone else to do that, probably, like someone who's trained. And yeah, or an undergraduate yeah. student yeah. with a scanner, yeah. <laughs> like me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a sort of fragmentariness um, to the archive, even though it's trying to be sort of like whole and collected and complete. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that, that can be a virtue. I think one of the great things about archives that we've been sort of mentioning in different ways this whole time is the stuff that accidentally shows up in there. Mm. I mean, when you're trying to collect, uh, you know, say in my case, the, the, the papers of Tom Wolfe, you also end up collecting all the voices of these random Americans who wrote him hate mail or love mail in the 60s and 70s. Um, and, you know, originally I, uh, I went down to 
this archive because I don't know. I wanted to like read all this research that Tom Wolfe had taken while um, trying to write um, one of his novels um, and Bonfire of the Vanities. In case you were curious, and um, what I actually ended up doing for a week was just reading through all this correspondence sent to him by readers, and. None of it was really important to Tom Wolfe at all. What was so interesting about these letters is that, you know, reading is one of those practices that is hard to observe <laughs> or to document or to record. I mean, yeah, it's so important to what we do as literature scholars. Um, and here was this giant record of people describing themselves, how they read and where they read and when they read and what their reactions were. Um, there was this amazing letter from a couple and they wrote to Tom Wolfe because they hated him. They hated reading his work in like Sunday supplements of magazines or newspapers. But then a bunch of his work was uh, collected in a book, and when they read it in the book, they loved him. So the letter is this conversion story of them going from hating Wolfe to liking him. And the difference was, um, and this is like laid out in very specific detail, the way they were able to read him in a book, like in a codex, yeah. versus the way they were uh, forced to read him in newsprint. So they were like in bed on a Sunday morning, they just want to relax, but there's all this news being delivered to them, and they have to like sort through it all, and they can't just leisurely read it. They have to read while thinking like, am I wasting my time? Is this valuable? Is there something more valuable at the end of the paper that I'm not gonna get to because I'm stuck here reading Tom Wolfe's stupid shit? So there's this kind of like pressure uh, they felt while reading newsprint that they didn't re feel while reading a book. And it was just so fascinating to hear this because here I am in an archive kind of unexpectedly coming upon this reader's detailed description of their reading life. And what they're describing to me is their house as an archive. Like this need to like push out the trashy stuff that they don't want to save and to uh, maintain or keep the stuff that is valuable to them they do. And it was a lot easier to see a bound book in that case as valuable, something to be put on the shelf and kept for a long time than, you know, a newspaper or a magazine with a date printed on it that is sort of necessarily um, uh, not supposed to like lay around. And I think he actually even says at some point, the, the writer of the letter, like, you can't leave the damn stuff piling up around the house or something like that, so. No, but that's amazing because um, the like, the feeling that you were, you were describing, this couple describing, of reading Tom Wolfe's work in the newspaper is so much the feeling that I feel whenever I work in an archive. It's mm -hmm. the like, because you have to wade through so much stuff and because you always have a limited amount of time, because it's not like working it, at your house or just sort of regular working in the library. You have a set schedule. You have to come in and follow these procedures and leave by a certain hour and whatever else. I feel so much time pressure, like, is this the relevant thing? How do I get to the relevant yeah. thing? And like, you know, where am I going with this? Um, which uh, maybe would be a good place to sort of go for the end of our conversation, is like, thoughts on the temporality of the archive? I mean, it really depends, like, because you do have those times where you're like, I've got a week in this ar archive because I'm visiting from, you know, out of the country, out of the state, or out of the city. Um, 
you know, when I went to read Joan Didion's papers at, um, at in Berkeley, there's really not that many of them, but I only had five days, and so I was just like, no lunch breaks, just read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, and in some cases, you know, I'm reading three different manuscripts of the same novel, and it's like, oh god, actually, these are way more similar than I realized. Rush, 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 rush. Yeah. So in in those cases, there is an entirely different kind of reading practice. Um, and one that I would argue is actually not very good for the kind of work that we're trying to do, but sometimes it's what you got. Yeah. Other times you do have the luxury of living where the archive is, in the same city at least, and um, being able to visit multiple times and just sort of explore and read around and like find what's in there. Um, and in that case, you have this like totally free play reading practice where you can make like fun weird associations and produce new ideas and like that's such a totally different practice of reading so i mean so many different types of of uh strategy so many different strategies can exist in the same um in the same archive really and then you have objects like the typewriter how do you read a typewriter what does that mean like that's a really important question when you're faced with something that's not a text necessarily in an archive so yeah and at the beginning of my summer I had this really helpful conversation with my friend Jordan who had gotten this little nugget from uh, Paula McDowell I think actually on the faculty here who um, said there's a temptation to own the archive Hmm. when you're in it. And my first experience in the Bailey Papers, I came with my camera, I attached it to a little tripod that they have that's specifically for documents where you screw it on, it's like facing directly down, and you can just take photos of of pages very rapidly. And I just came out with this huge digital pile of photographs of correspondence that I never went back to for the most part. Very little of that that I reference later because I just thought, well, I don't have time to read it now. I'm just going to get a digital copy and then I'll be able to go back and I'll organize these files to match up with the organization, you know, in the archive. And I'll be able to use the archival finding aid to, like, go through my own digital archive. Yeah, that you I've accidentally produced, produced your own archive. <laughs> and it's like, and then I, that was never an appealing option, actually, because I'd rather go through it physically. Um, and then being there for about two months this summer, I could just step back and say I don't need to own this there's always going to be more of this collection that I will not have read um, because it's so vast and it's only one person Um, so I'm just going to kind of find my way in to certain places and explore a little bit and try to figure out like what's going to be helpful for this very relatively small project that I'm working on that's it for this episode of the electric text remember Try not to own the archive, but do visit them. The Electric Text was created by our cohort, Anna Moser, Beranger Ryu, Chad Hegelmeyer, David Sugarman, Owen Quinn, Gina Dominic, Kimberly Adams, Ruby Lowe, Penelope Myers, and Vignesh Sridharan. This episode includes the voices of John Lindstrom, Chad Hagelmeyer, that's me, and Kimberly Adams. Kim Adams edited this episode and runs our website. Our theme music is composed by Owen Quinn. The electric text is supported by the English department at NYU. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website, electrictext.net. <laughs>
That's electrictext, all one word, dot net. You can also reach us by email at electrictext at gmail.com. That's electrictext spelled with two X's, E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-T-E-X-X-T at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. Gosh, books really are amazing. Well, that's all for now. We'll catch you next time on the NYU English Graduate Students Podcast. So take one. End of podcast. <laughs>